So this morning, I'm going to continue um, a reflection on the, the fourth grounding foundation of mindfulness. Yesterday, we looked at the uh, hindrances through the figure of Mara. And today I want to go to the next one, which is the reflection on the five aggregates, as they're usually called. Unfortunately, even though I've heard this word for decades, whenever I hear someone say aggregate, I think of construction sites. (laughs) It's a very... um, uh, unappealing term. I'm going to call them the five bundles, and I'll explain why. But before that, um, I'd like to just reflect a little bit on something that came up in the discussion yesterday, and that is the difference in looking at, say, the hindrances, the five hindrances. Attachment, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt, on the one hand, and looking at the same process but through the personification in the figure of this tricksterish character called Mara. Now, we pointed out um, yesterday the difference between looking at these things in terms of a list of mental states, you know, clearly delineated, which is very helpful, and on the other hand, looking at the same process in terms of parables and stories and mythological imagery, such as that of Mara. So when we saw that story yesterday about Mara assuming the form of a farmer and then interfering with the Buddha's teaching to his monks. We have there, I think, immediately a total picture of a world. You can't help but think of that in a, in a total sense. A scene, characters, figures, dialogues, interactions, questions, responses... Nothing's being defined, nothing's being pinned down, but somehow that situation evokes, in a more uh, imagistic sense, an experience with which we're all familiar at quite a visceral level. And then, as in most of the passages with Mara, the conclusion is where the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. But what kind of knowing is that? In English, unfortunately, we've somehow lost a distinction that is very central to um, most of the other European languages. In French, you have two words for knowing something. You have connaître and savoir. Or in German, you have uh, kennen and wissen. Now, when I was at school, I remember being taught in French lessons that connaître means to know a person, whereas savoir means to know a thing. So I know John, but I also know that two and two makes four. Now, in English, we don't make a distinction there. We just say no. We understand the difference in meaning implicitly, but it's not stated. So when the Buddha says, I know you, Mara, he's actually, I think, using know in the sense of connaître. Je te connais, Mara. I know you. Ich kenne dich. Now that's a different quality of knowing to say, I know that there is anger arising in my mind. Or I know that there are five hindrances. Now this distinction I think is perhaps important. Um, When we relate to Mara as a person, 
that implies a different kind of knowing, a knowing that is in a sense more embracing, a knowing that implies also a sense of intimacy, a knowing um, that suggests a relationship of care, a relationship of involvement at all levels of our of our experience. When you have the story of the Buddha and Mara interacting, uh, there's an involvement, a complex in interaction going on that can't be reduced to certain mental states. Whereas when we uh, know that there is anger in my mind, that's far more a kind of um, uh, cognitive knowing of a fact. This is, that is the case. There is anger in my mind. But it's not the kind of knowing that would imply to another person. Now, although I remember clearly from my early lessons in French and German that connaître and kennen have to do with other people and wissen and savoir have to do with things, in reality it's actually not quite as simple as that. For example, in French you say, um, Est-ce que tu connais ce chanson? Do you know this song? Connaître, not savoir. Um, Est-ce que tu connais le chemin? Do you know the way, the path? Again, connaître, not savoir. Est-ce que tu connais la ville? Do you know the town? Connaître, not savoir. In other words, um, this kind of knowing has not just got to do with other people but it has to do also with a kind of familiarity or an intimacy or an acquaintance with an environment, with a place, with a path. I think that's quite interesting, that we know paths, we know music in the similar way in which we know people. And in fact, going back to Ian McKilchrist's book, um, which reminded me of this, um, he says that, you know, the, the same areas of the brain light up when a person is listening to music um, as light up when a person is engaging in an interaction with another person. In other words, it's the right hemisphere again. So you see this same kind of tension, I think, um, here in, in this practice that we're doing. Uh, and the, the language we use and, and the categories and the, and the frame of terms we use, I think do have subtle effects on the kind of relationship we have to our practice. If it's about knowing Mara, then our practice becomes less kind of, uh, 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 in a sense, uh, concerned with identifying particular details of experience and being more attentive, having a certain relationship of care to the totality of our experience. But of course, both are useful. I mean, we, we, we gain a great deal from both approaches, but I think the danger is that the, 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 the rather more categorical kind of knowing the more intellectual kind of knowing, the more discursive kind of knowing, uh, often is given the upper hand. That's what it's really about. If we go back to the passage, again, I alluded to yesterday, which comes from Marjama 26, where the Buddha is describing his own process of awakening. I think we've touch on a similar sort of, of tension. Um, he says, This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. The word in Pali for sensed is, is felt. It's Vedana. It's the same root is the word feeling, felt by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. 
It's hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, this conditionality, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. Were I to teach the Dhamma, this Dhamma, and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. And it's here then we find in the following uh, versification, or arguably the verse came first and the prose came second. It's where you get this famous expression, what I have understood um, goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. So here too, I, again, this passage is very, very rich. And I think it's, there's no right one right interpretation of what it means. But in the light of what we've been thinking about, again we find this tension between being attached, as it were, to a particular place, a particular base for my identity, something that I get very attached to, very much centred around the notion of self, of ego, but also our place in the world, my position in society, my rank in my office, my political and religious beliefs, all of these give me a sense of place. They give me what appears to be a sense of security, arguably a security against the unfolding, the rising, the vanishing of life itself, or the bundles as they rise and pass away. And the Buddha describes his awakening, though, as a shift away from that perspective, and an opening to what he calls idam tannam, this ground, this ground. And what he understands to be this ground that he's, as it were, awoken to is idapachayata, very difficult to translate, something like this conditionality. This referring to specific things that arise out of circumstances and generate future results and consequences. Or in the more well-known articulation, paticca samupada, conditioned arising, conditionality, contingency. So in other words, this awakening is a shift of perspective from a preoccupation with particular things that appear to give us some kind of ground in our lives to an awakening to the the actual ground of our life which paradoxically is not a ground at all because it's constantly arising and vanishing constantly slipping away constantly turning into something else and this, of course, is really the flow of life itself. There's something very total in that sense. The sheer on rush of experience. But that's not the only ground. The other ground, the other aspect of the ground, let's say, is the stilling of inclinations, the fading away of craving, a certain dispassion, a stopping, what is called nibbana, the, the, the falling away of, of greed and hatred and confusion. In other words, moments of, of deep stillness and clarity of mind. And arguably that's the perspective from which we're then able to be open, we're then able to know, connaître, our own ground which is not a ground, it's a groundless ground that's endlessly arising and vanishing. And this, he says, this experience um, is actually very difficult to get. He says it's patisotagami, it goes against the stream. 
we might say in modern English, it is counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. It kind of goes against the idea that if we go deeply into the essence of our experience, we'll arrive at some kind of transcendent, ultimate, absolute truth. We might call it God or something. Something really, really fundamental. And yet this is precisely what the Buddha does not find. Instead, he just finds pure uh, flux and contingency and change endlessly unfolding. So what is the stream against which this awakening occurs? It's sometimes called Mara Sota, uh, the stream of Mara. Sometimes it's translated as the flood of Mara. In other words, if since Mara is the killer, it's related to the notion of death, uh, this is the stream of death, in a sense. Uh, the, 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 the experience of life is something that's always entropically running out, um, breaking down, and ultimately will conclude with our death. And there's no escaping that. Um, uh, the, Martin Heidegger talks of uh, experience as Zutodesign uh, it's, a, it's a being towards death and again at the beginning of the retreat I spoke of this contemplation I did as a Tibetan monk where we would contemplate the certainty of death the uncertainty of time of death and so on and this is very much about internalizing a sense of your life as constantly being, um, as it were, in motion towards its own end. And this is, of course, captured in the very idea of impermanence. It's not just impermanence because it changes from moment to moment, but it's an impermanence because it's going to run out and vanish. Everything we take to be so solid and secure and sort of real now is very temporary. But this stream of Mara, if we go back to the hindrances, is also tainted or coloured or characterised by attachment, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and usually we say doubt, but let's say ambivalence, vacillation, can't quite decide what to do. So there's something again about the, 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 the stream of conditions that pour forth that seem to almost um, entail, or at least through our, for whatever conditions have given rise to it, seem to be somehow pervaded by grasping at things we like, uh, being resistant to what irritates us, um, when nothing much is going on, either stimulating or uh, something we have an issue with, then we feel restless or we feel lethargic, we feel bored, and we don't quite know what to do. And although we might categorize those as the five hindrances, if we look at it as a whole, we're really getting a sketch of an unfulfilled life, a life that is kind of bogged down in its habits and its attachments and its fears and just doesn't really go anywhere it's kind of stuck which is of course the you know the primary feature of mara is the sense of being stuck or blocked or in a constant impasse so if we tease this metaphor out a bit further a teaching or a practice that goes against the stream, goes against the flood of Mara, is actually a practice that goes against the hindrances. But again, let's try to imagine what that feels like. The imagery is very explicit. It's an image of a river or a stream, let's say a river. And as long as you're swimming downstream or you're in your little boat going downstream, it's a snip. 
It's dead easy. You don't have to do much. You just sort of go along with the flow. But as soon as, for whatever reason, you decide to go against that river, against that current, against that stream, then we all know what happens. Suddenly it's hard work. Suddenly you find yourself having to make a lot of effort and even so, sometimes making negative progress. The river's stronger than you, very often. And also, it's uncomfortable. Instead of everything just flowing along with you, you're now in conf- constantly confronting the stuff that's being you know, thrown the other way, bits of rubbish on the surface, waves. They're all kind of in your face. And in some ways, I think that's often quite a vivid metaphor of um, the kind of difficulties we face in, in meditation practice. It often feels as though we're kind of fighting against a, a tide or a movement that's way stronger than us. As long as we're not going against it, though, it seems easy. We just keep, you know, we follow our impulses, we... You know, just sort of merrily sort of trip along. But the trouble is that often isn't terribly fulfilling. It's often frustrating in the end. So what the Buddha is, is suggesting is that we, we turn around and go the other way. Now what is, I find quite interesting here is that the word sota although it's used in this sense of Mara Sota, the stream of Mara, the demonic stream, is also used in a very positive sense in the phrase um, Sotapati or Sotapana, stream entry or stream entrant, which is considered the first stage of genuine insight, of genuine engagement with the path itself. We're going to come back to this in the next couple of days. So, I don't think the Buddha or his followers or whoever finally came up with these ideas, that these words were just being used arbitrarily. It seems that there must have been, I feel, a quite conscious awareness of using the same term in opposite senses. Entering the stream is also going against the stream. Now what that image um, entails is um, turbulence, basically. Um, If you think of a little stream that then runs into a larger river, but not with the flow, but against the flow, then immediately you think of little eddies and whirlpools and uh, ruffles on the surface of the water and so on. So I wonder in some senses whether this is again uh, a rather um, realistic image of a great deal of what it feels like to be embarking on this kind of practice or way of life, that we're inevitably creating a condition for turbulence, And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I feel that that is actually what sometimes gives our practice a sense of edge, a sense of of actually something beginning to move within us, something beginning to really uh, sort of take off. Now, we can also understand... The, um, the flow or the stream or the river of Mara as a way of talking about the five bundles. I'm going to go through these five bundles one by one uh, in a minute. But before doing that, I think it's worth noting that although we talk of the five aggregates, the five bundles or whatever, we have to remember that in, in most instances in the canon... Um, it actually says the punch 
Upadana Kanda. In other words, the five clinging bundles, or the five bundles of clinging. Upadana is usually translated as clinging, um, which we'll stick to. But, you know, what does that mean, clinging? Well, what, what a bundle is, hard, or an aggregate, that in itself is a bit difficult to understand, but what does it mean to be a clinging bundle? Well, there's a passage here from the Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 22. And I think Ananda is speaking, and he's recalling something that his preceptor told him. Now, Ananda's preceptor, strangely, wasn't the Buddha, but was a man called Punga Mantaniputta, who was a monk who was actually the nephew of Kondanya, who was the first of the five ascetics to understand the Buddha's teaching. So Punga was the son of Mantani. Mantani was the sister of Kondanya. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, uh, this is how um, Punga Mantaniputta describes clinging. He says, it is by clinging that I am occurs. By clinging to what? By clinging to form, by clinging to feeling, by clinging to perception, by clinging to inclination, and by clinging to consciousness, does I am occur. Not without clinging. There's no clinging, this I am doesn't occur. Now again, how do we understand this? Pungamantani Putta then gives a very striking uh, metaphor for this. He says it's just like a vain young man or woman would examine his or her own face in a mirror or bowl filled with clear water. In other words, obviously for us, this evokes the image of Narcissus. That um, the notion of I am here is not just the everyday notion, you know, I'm going to go and have lunch now, sense of I am, but is a kind of narcissistic sense of I am. Um, an attractive young man or woman looking in a mirror or looking in a, at that time it would have been more common to see your reflection in a, in a bowl of water, that when they look on that image, they look on it with delight and clinging, not with dispassion and equanimity. And where do we see that image reflected? We see it in our bodies, in our feelings, in our perceptions, in our inclinations, in our consciousness, the five bundles. What this points to, I feel, is that the very primary experience of, uh, of what's going on is one in which we constantly see ourselves reflected back. We, we, we observe our body, we observe our feelings, we're aware of what we perceive, of what we want to do, of the fact that we're conscious. And in each instance, as long as clinging is at work, and it seems that clinging is very much saturating these bundles, then not, we don't just see processes of impermanent, physical, emotional and mental stuff coming and going. Instead, we see reflected back our own image and we somehow either delight in that in a sort of narcissistic way or I would also suggest in the, the shadow side of that is we sometimes feel a sense of, of, of displeasure, of dislike, of sometimes even a kind of loathing of the image that we experience. It's not just about f saying, wow, don't I look great? Sometimes that doesn't, we don't feel like that at all. We say, God, really, I look like shit today. 
So in other words, I wonder if there's not something almost sort of intrinsically hypnotic or mesmerizing about the sheer uh, rush of experience that, in a sense, generates this seductive image of me. And it's not just an image, it's, it's a very deeply felt conviction or sense that there's something in here that is intrinsically me and it doesn't change and that's what I really am. So in some senses, you, instead of noticing as we've been... I mean, we, we saw that text with Sariputta where he, he says, well, radical attention means observing and seeing the aggregates or the bundles, these five things, as impermanent, as dukkha, as empty and as not-self. That's what radical attention is. So radical attention, yonis or manasikara, is about attending to the, um, the onrush of experience, physical, mental, emotional, in such a way that we focus on those features that we tend to overlook because we're so mesmerized and bedazzled by the image of me that's reflected back. And this entrancement with me is a kind of immobilization, a kind of self-centered fixation. And that is, in a, in a way, where Mara has his deepest hold on us. It's in this crystallizing everything around this notion of a kind of alien, alienated, and yet a compulsively interesting person called me. So the, the process the Buddha's describing here, and Punna, Mantani Putta, and Sariputta, and the others, um, is of a very uh, uh, radical reconnection or relationship with our experience and that we know it in another way. We become familiar and intimate with it in another way. And just finally on this um, imagery of the stream, the practice is, is therefore one in which we have to work against this stream but that is not a kind of hopeless endeavor. The metaphors that may come to mind are those of a, a little sailing boat that tacks against the wind. In other words, you by aligning the sails in the right way and the rudder and so on, um, you can go into the wind and actually progress. In other words, you utilize the force of the water and the wind that's coming against you to your own advantage. You gain traction against the very things that are opposing you. One thinks also perhaps here of karate and some of the martial arts where you use the opponent's strength to your own advantage. And back in the early 19th century you find uh, Coleridge uh, contemplating a stream and noticing the um, what he calls the long-legged fly, uh, the water boatman, we say in English, uh, who manages to walk upstream by um, utilizing the power of the water to gain purchase in order to move in the opposite direction to the one the stream is moving in. And I wonder if that is also not, again, a useful way of looking at this, which gets us out of the idea that the hindrances are bad, you've got to get rid of them. If you follow this metaphor, it's not about getting rid of anything, which arguably is kind of built into your whole neurobiology, but rather learning how to uh, make use of those energies, the so-called hindrances, to overcome them. So... That's the sort of broad sense in which I'd like to now look at, or the broad framework within which I'd now like to just quickly look at the five 
bundles. The word for bundle in, in Pali or Sanskrit is kanda or skanda, which does mean heap or pile of something. It's not a very inspiring image. Um, but it's very difficult to find one that works. In any case, what are these five? Well, I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, but let's just go through them carefully. The first one is rupa, which is usually translated as form. The second one is vedana, usually translated as feeling. The third is sanya, usually translated as perception. The fourth is sankara, usually translated as something like mental formations or volitional formations. But frankly, I think neither, both terms are hopeless in conveying what it means. Um, I think a far better translation, which by coincidence happens to be my choice, (laughs) is inclination. I've struggled with how to translate Sankara for a long time. And inclination is my current um, preference. I'll explain why. And then Vijnana is the fifth of these bundles, which we usually translate as consciousness, and that's, I think, fairly accurate. So we have form, feeling, perception, inclination, and consciousness. Now, again, the notion of aggregate or bundle immediately suggests some separate, distinctive thing. And I think we really need to get out of that kind of thinking and see that these are just basically helpful devices or pointers to make us notice certain features of experience as a whole. To me, the five aggregates, the five bundles, are shorthand for experience. Experience in the widest possible sense, before we make a distinction between subject and object. The totality of felt phenomenological experience. And I think it's more helpful to think of the five bundles as describing a spectrum rather than five distinct things. And it's only really by seeing how they all kind of interconnect that we recover a sense of the whole here. So let's start with, with, with rupa. Now, unfortunately, there is no word either in Pali or in Sanskrit or in English that can really capture what is meant by rupa. Rupa, and the Buddha had the same problem as we do in finding a word for this. Rupa means what you see and what you, what you see through the eyes. Rupa means form. It's quite a correct translation. It includes color and shape. What you see visually is rupa. But they took the notion of rupa and then applied it as a kind of shorthand for what you hear and what you smell and what you taste, and what you touch through the body. That's all rupa. But of course it's not all form, or shape, or colour. I mean, a smell is not form. Or if you do say that, it's a very odd usage. Um, A sensation of, of roughness against my skin. Would you call that form? I'd be hard-pressed to do so. But what the point is that rupa refers um, to the totality of what, in in some some medical text, is called our sensorium, Um, the totality of our sensory experience, including what it is that we are aware of, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, also the organs of the eyes and the ears and the nose, through which we know these things, and also the body. Rupa refers sometimes just to the body. 
So again, we come back very much to a sense of, of, of embodiment, which is of the nature to, as it were, mediate uh, the impact of sounds and smells and tastes and touches. So the rupa kanda, the bundle of rupa, is pointing to how experience is one in which we are continually, uninterruptedly assailed by the world, by an environment. And not just out there, but also it would include the physical sensations in our body that are much more my own. It's suggesting that experience is one in which we're always being touched. The, the word touch is usually tra- pasa, usually translated as contact, which I find a little bit dry. But it actually goes back to the Pali word pusati, which means to touch. So in other words, if we take that very literally, experience is always an experience of being in touch an experience of being touched, whether that's being touched physically on the body or being touched metaphorically through things that we see and hear and smell and taste. These things happen to us. Experience in its totality is always an experience of something happening to us. And that's usually out of our control. We sit on our cushion and things happen, and we become aware of that. Now what happens when the world assails our senses and our bodies and our minds is primarily three things. And these are the 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 second, the third, and the fourth bundle. And they all occur pretty much at the same time. So... In experience, we are impacted by a world that, one, feels a certain way. Two, makes perceptual sense. And three, inclines us to adopt a stance or a disposition towards it. That's how I understand the second, the third, and the fourth bundle. Vedana is, as I'm sure most of you know, that spectrum of feeling tone that extends from pleasure through neither pleasure nor displeasure through to displeasure, or a spectrum from ecstasy to agony, basically. That any experience is one in which we will feel a certain way about it, even if that feeling a certain way is one of neutrality and indifference. At the same time, experience presents itself to us as intelligible. In other words, when we walk into this room, for example, we don't, as a kind of crude sort of scientific account might suggest find ourselves bombarded by lots of colours and shapes and smells and so forth and so on which we then kind of have to figure out Uh, the room and its contents immediately without having to think makes sense we know how far the end wall is we know there are windows and curtains we recognize the people sitting in their different places. All of this seems to come from uh, uh, the, the external world itself. Whereas, in fact, we know now, not just through Buddhist philosophy, but also through, through neuroscience, that this world is actually learned and constructed. We learn to make sense of the world. People have had operations, people have been born blind, who then in adulthood have an operation to restore their sight, when the bandages are lifted, they do not see the doctors and their wife and their pet dog and the flowers on the um, side table. 
They just see a bewildering and confusing array of what they are told are called shapes and colors. It takes an awful long time to make sense of that. We have the advantage that since our earliest childhood, we've learned how to make sense of all of this. That's perception, that the world makes sense. It's intelligible, it's meaningful, and we do that through language, obviously, to a high degree. And the other thing that happens as soon as we um, find ourselves in a moment of experience is that we assume a stance towards it. We incline a certain way. We may have an inclination that's aversive, I don't like that, or very much the opposite of, of wanting to have more of it, to explore it, to be fascinated by it, or again an inclination of indifference not really caring much one way or the other. But it's very difficult to imagine an experience in which we're not inclined in a particular way. Even to have a still, focused, meditative awareness is again a sort of posture or stance vis-à-vis experience. And then... um, the fifth khanda, the fifth bundle, uh, is consciousness. Now, curiously, the, the, tech, the, the, the suttas, at least, say very little about consciousness. Um, all the Buddha really does is, is tell us what are the conditions under which consciousness occurs. Now, there are different ways in which this is done. The standard way is that when there is Uh, let's say, a visual object, um, an active and healthy eye organ, when the two meet or touch, passa, then consciousness happens. But there's another passage, um, which again is in the Sangyutta in in chapter 22, where um, we get a rather more nuanced account of this. And I'll read it out. It, uh, this, is the, this is the Buddha speaking. He says, With the arising of, of contact or touch, there is the arising of feeling. With the arising of touch or contact, there is the arising of perception. And with the arising of touch, there is the arising of inclination. In other words, contact or touch provokes or triggers, let's say, immediately, and I'll I'll just read out how I've summarized it here, as soon as I come into touch with a situation in the world, it feels a certain way, it makes perceptual sense, and inclines me to adopt a stance towards it. So in other words, touching an environment an organism interacting with the environment immediately triggers a certain way it feels, a certain way it makes sense, and a certain way we incline ourselves towards it. Now, I think an important point here is not to make the mistake that what the Buddha's doing is trying to give us a kind of proto-scientific um, description of the nature of reality. We have to completely put that aside. I think that's not what's going on at all. Why then does the Buddha speak in terms of these five bundles? What's the point? Why not just two, body and mind, for example? Much simpler. My sense is that every um, teaching we find in these texts is an instruction. It's pragmatic. It's there to help us do something, to accomplish some kind of task. So the way in which the world or experience is parsed, in other words, sort of uh, teased apart, 
is in order to help us realize the goals of the path or the Dhamma. And this is, we'll come back to this in the next days. So the reason feeling is highlighted is because feeling is the basis upon which we subsequently react. And we get caught up in our reactivity, in our desires, in our fears, in our hatreds and so on. It gives rise to what is called tangha, craving. So it's important, therefore, to become intimate with this quality of how the world or how experience feels. And that's why it's the second of the four groundings of attention or mindfulness. Perception. Perception's important because the Buddha's analysis of our, um, you know, our blocked condition is rooted in the fact that we misperceive the nature of ourselves in the world. We think of things that are impermanent to be permanent, things that are dukkha, we take to be sukkha, a sort of tragic, we take to be pleasant, and things which are not self, we take to be self. Now, all of those are perceptions. In other words, there's a, there, there is a conditioning. Traditional Buddhism would understand this conditioning to come from many past lifetimes. Nowadays, we might see this conditioning as just the legacy of our biological evolution. I don't think it really matters terribly much. But in both cases, there's an acknowledgement that um, we are already pre-programmed to experience things a certain way, to experience the, the world as an arena for my well-being, the world as a place where I can find permanent satisfaction, the world is a place that I can make to be mine in some sort of lasting way. And that seems to be pre-programmed. And that's the stream against which this practice goes. So we systematically, and this is hard work, over time train ourselves to notice anicca, dukkha, shunya, anatta. Not self, empty, tragic, transient nature of experience. And that's the practice of vipassana. Vipassana is attending to those features of experience that we tend to overlook. And all of that has to do with perception. The third bundle. The fourth bundle, inclination, is, of course the basis for ethics. In other words, how we think and speak and act in response to experience. Inclination is how we initially assume a stance, a disposition, a perspective on experience that then determines how we act. And so, in, in another passage in the Sangyutta, uh, the Buddha identifies inclination with intention, chetana. Inclination is intention. And that's one of the reasons you get the translation, volitional formations. The reason I can't stand the word formation is that it is passive. A formation is already something that's formed. But the word sankara is in the active voice. Kara means to do. It's the, this is clear, I remember, in my Tibetan training. You have dujet, is sankara. It's, it's, the, it's that which forms, that which gathers, literally in Tibetan, that which puts together something. It's not what has been put together or what has been formed. That's sankata in, in Pali. I know that's a bit technical, but I think this is an important point, that... The reason I choose inclination is because it points to intention. And intention, and the Buddha is very clear about this, is how he understands karma or action. Karma is chetana. Action is intention. 
and intention is inclination, or at least the beginning of an action is the way we incline to respond to experience that is happening to us. So we can see here how feeling, perception, inclination are the kind of raw materials for our practice of mindfulness, our practice of vipassana, and our practice of ethics. And that's the reason, I believe, the, 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 the Buddha broke the world up into these five bundles. But we still haven't said anything about consciousness. Now what is interesting in the passage I read out is that he says that contact gives rise to feeling, perception, and inclination. But he doesn't say that contact gives rise to consciousness. But, in the next line, he explains what it is that gives rise to consciousness. He says, with the arising of name and form, there is the arising of consciousness. Okay, name and form is a technical expression, nama rupa. But what it boils down to is rupa is the same as in the first of these five, form. Nama includes contact, feeling, perception, intention, and attention. We don't have time to go into that now, but take my word for this, that name form is basically the first uh, four bundles. Consciousness, therefore, according to this text, arises out of all four, both uh, things in the world, sense objects, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, together generate what it means to say, I'm conscious of this. I know now what's going on here in a unified sense. I think what's distinctive about consciousness is um, how unified it is and how, in a sense, total it is. It's not, in that sense, comparable to a perception or a feeling. It It is the whole shebang. And what that points to is that consciousness cannot be understood as emerging out of the body, the brain, for example, nor can it be understood as purely arising out of mental processes. Consciousness is what emerges when an organism encounters an environment. Consciousness is not something you can uh, reductively say is produced by the world or is produced by the body or the mind. And again, that has parallels in certain um, aspects of neuroscience, particularly the work of a neuroscientist called Alva Noe, N-O-E, who wrote a book recently called Out of Our Heads, which is his understanding of consciousness as something that is not reducible to brain activity, Um, it's not reducible to just a kind of an automatic response from the environment, but it is the complex whole out of which all of these different elements, um, uh, or the complex whole generated out of this diversity of elements. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop here. But what that points to, finally... um, is that consciousness for the Buddha is not something that somehow already is in us somewhere, sort of peering out onto the world. Um, But rather consciousness is an an emergent um, feature of the total complexity of experience. So that's the the second of of the... practices within the uh, fourth uh, practice of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the bundles, mindfulness of the aggregates, mindfulness of the khandhas. And again, we can see here, we're, we're talking about a kind of framing device, these five 
Kanda, which by paying attention to, by being mindful of, we um, become more attuned to those features of experience that will be the, the source or the ground for the letting go of craving and the creating of a path which has a moral and an ethical dimension. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.